Well, good morning. I hope you're ready to take flight this morning as we begin a brand new series called Down to a Science. For the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at science, having science experiments, looking at the lens of faith in God through a variety of different lenses, some of which are going to involve you know, looking under the microscope, some are going to look at the telescope, some are going to look at kinetic energy and how we turn mechanical energy into uh, electrical energy, and we're going to have some electrical stuff, we're going to have some science experiments. We're going to have all of science, rather than being an enemy of faith, how science, electricity, biology, biomechanics, physics, and astronomy all point to a creator. And this evidence can lead you to that conclusion, not a lack of evidence, as we look at these different uh, experiments together and different stories together. So welcome today as we take flight into the biology of birds and the beauty and the wonder of creation. I told you a few weeks ago it was our first chance having two Chads on stage. It's time again. Give a warm horizon welcome to Chad Eckert. Chad, come on down. Great to have you with us today. Thank you. So tell us, what do you do for a living and, and what's your love of science? Where did it start? Yeah, so I, um, I'm an engineer, absolutely love science. Science gets me phosphorylated. That's a dad and science joke for anyone that <laughs> would, would catch that. So I, you know, I, at an early age, I was fascinated by science and engineering. I was blessed to have a father who inundated me with science. I was the kid getting uh, Van de Graaff electrostatic generators for Christmas and chemistry sets while everyone else mm -hmm. was getting you know, other uh, sports stuff. So I absolutely love it. I, um, you know, when I, when I first had exposure to science, I recognized that I actually really love the confluence of biology, chemistry, physics, and engineering, where all hmm. of these interface. And in particular, I'm fascinated by the questions of what and why, the, the meaty science-type questions, as well as driven hmm. by the questions of how, which is more on the engineering side. Sure. Uh, so I knew uh, that I wanted to use both of those passions to do something mm -hmm. to help people, uh, which led to... Um, pursuing a first a bachelor's degree in, in material science and engineering, and then later a PhD in bioengineering with a focus on soft tissue biomechanics hmm. and uh, cardiovascular tissue engineering. So I was actually making, growing heart valves for, for kids wow. uh, to try to solve some challenges. I transitioned to a clinical rule where I was working with end-stage heart failure patients mm -hmm. uh, that received artificial hearts. So amazing pieces of technology that were wow. keeping people alive and, and keeping their hearts going. Hmm. Uh, and then about 10 years ago, uh, moved to Cincinnati uh, to uh, work in industry on front end, very early stage research and development uh, for medical devices. And, and right now I'm actually in a subgroup of this company that's focused on interventional oncology. So we're looking at device and drug hmm. solutions, new procedures that we can develop to take on uh, the incredible unmet needs that exist in lung cancer. Wow. Now, were you always a person of faith, or did you kind of have that crisis a lot of people do that feels like a science and faith are not friends? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So I grew up in the church. I grew up uh, with a family of strong believers, but I really struggled as I grew deeper in my understanding of science to rectify what I was hearing on Sunday mornings, namely mm -hmm. that God was the author, the creator, mm -hmm. the architect of everything around us. And what I was learning and, quite frankly, being inundated with Monday through Saturday, which is that evolution is the architect of everything around us. Mm. As I posed those questions at church, I'll be honest, I, I struggled to, to feel satiated with the answers. Yeah. I was the kid that non-maliciously was asking, you know, where did the dinosaurs come from? And can you explain to me the fossil record? Yeah. How does this all match with what, you know, we, we read about in the Bible? Mm. There's actually two events that happened that really... Uh, had a profound impact on my beliefs. 
The first was a, a book that a mentor gave me, mm -hmm. uh, Darwin's Black Box, if anyone has read that. Sure, I've read it. Mm -hmm. Great book. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't read it until many years later, <laughs> um, but it validated everything that I was thinking. Uh, the second event was in high school biology, advanced biology class. You know, you open up any biology book, uh, you'll see introduction to evolution, you'll hear about Darwin, you hear about the voyage, you hear about the Galapagos Islands, the, the, uh, the finch, finches, yeah, big finches, finch beaks, yeah. and, and you see these progressions of beaks that, mm -hmm. that uh, are amenable to different feeding habitats. But as we dug deeper in that class, where you know, initially you had a very uh, provocative and um, perhaps understandable uh, plausible explanation for how all this happens. Mm -hmm. We dig, dig deeper into the, into the biology, the molecular pathways, uh, what's actually happening under the hood, so to speak, mm. and it, it completely changed my perspective. Mm. And I'll probably be the only person on stage to say that I had divine intervention from the Krebs cycle, but as we <laughs> dug deeper into metabolism, and I got to see this incredibly complex mechanism that's ubiquitous, that, that is responsible for all of our energy production, hmm. uh, the Krebs cycle and the inextricably linked electron transport chain, and looking at the incredible complexity that exists in that, not just the, the existence of the right proteins and enzymes and substrates, but actually them existing at, at the right place, at the right time, in the right concentration, hmm. all together at once, uh, was beyond what could be explained by evolution. Mm. Um, so that, that, that completely won me gotcha. over, and then I was able to go back to look at those birds and the mm -hmm. other things from the book with a new understanding that you know, what we see at the surface is, is just part of it. You dig deeper and you see so much more of the complexity that exists at the cellular, at the biology, the, the molecular level, the design, an architect like God is the only way that this can be explained. Wow, and so now as a person of faith, I mean, do you, if you go back and talk to yourself many years ago, what would kind of be the, the main benefits to, to belief for, for those who are still struggling with these, these real tension points? Yeah, that's, that's also a great question, and I would say I have, I, have uh, I guess, three words of encouragement for you know, three different groups of people, and the first would be to that, that, that initial group, mm -hmm. the folks out there that are questioning. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Questioning is, yeah. is really good, and to even have those questions is, uh, is, is a great place to be. I would say keep digging deeper, mm. because as you continue to peel off the layers and, and dive in to the understanding of, of how the world works, I think God's design from an engineering perspective mm -hmm. shines. Wow. Uh, so keep questioning, and as I told you, you know, privately, I opened this up, not that I could answer every question, but if there are folks that are in a similar place as I was, mm -hmm. I would love to talk to people. We can awesome. work through some of these questions of science mm -hmm. and how to rectify that. Um, the second word of encouragement would be to the folks that, that are in my position that uh, are in science and are believers. And the, and the word would be that um, there are more of us out there than, mm. than you may see. Think. Yeah, and, yeah, and so don't be discouraged, but know that there are more out there. And for the third group, uh, for the folks that, that have those beliefs and are willing to share it, um, you know, the Bible talks about uh, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. And the Bible also says that, that uh, we need to speak the truth in love. And I think that's a call for us hmm. on how we engage folks that want to know more, that we need to do so with humility and um, in honoring God in all that we do. Hmm. Awesome. Can we thank Chad for being here today? Chad, thank you so much. Thanks. And uh, Chad will be available if anyone wants to chat with him about his journey. And so today as we dive into science, we're specifically going to look at Darwin's birds was often a catalyst to the, to the belief that maybe we don't need God. We're going to look at the beauty of the biology of birds today and see exactly what we learn about the complexity at every single level. We're going to look at some peacocks. 
We're going to look at some hummingbirds. We're going to allude to some chickens. We're going to allude to some cardinals. And maybe even take a look at a robin here and there. Maybe you'll recognize this song as we dance into the idea of the biology and beauty of birds. Well, I remember my friend Jim. I met him when I was in my 20s, and we had a ball together. In fact, every time I hung out with Jim, I'd say, hey, let's go play laser tag. We'd play laser tag. Let's go play paintball. We're shooting each other with paintball. Let's catch a Super Bowl. We'd do that. And I was always dragging these fun things I loved doing, and he was super smart. He was a chemist, worked for a big company in Atlanta, which serviced multi-million uh, dollar companies all over the world. I mean, he was wicked smart as a chemist. And one day I said, well, Jim, what do you do for fun? I'm always dragging to the fun stuff I like to do. What do you like to do for fun as a, as, a, as a chemist, as a friend? He's like, oh, man, thanks for asking. He said, I love, I mean, there's just nothing better than, than going bird watching. <laughs> bird watching? Really? Like, we have so much fun together. Like, why would you suddenly take the lame pill? Like, I can't imagine having nothing better to do in my life than grab binoculars and go bird watching. And he said, Chad, there is nothing better for my soul, and there's no evidence better for God than what I see through my binoculars. And this is the guy who I had a, some tar that got on my carpet. And he came over, looked at it, went home, whipped up some chemistry, and immediately could pull the tar out. I mean, this guy is smart. And that's the best evidence you have as a bird? Well, we're going to look today at what I call bird brain beauty. That we can focus our brain on the beauty all around us that we miss during the day. And I've began, I called Jim this week, and I have found over the years that he was more right than I was. What seemed lame to me and ridiculous to me can be nourishing to my soul and to yours. And bird brain beauty can fill your heart, your soul, and your mind. I know that's hard to believe. But by examining the biology of birds, you can be filled with thankfulness, be less anxious or worry-free, and you can be filled with wonder. Now, to do that, often when you enter into science or philosophy, the question is, how do you know if anything is true? Philosophers call this epistemology. So people say, well, I don't think that's true. I don't think this is true. But how do you know if anything's true? So during this series, we're going to use three lenses of how you know anything is true. Reason, reality, and reveling in wonder. Whenever you find out if your kids are lying to you or, or if a claim is true, as Aristotle and Plato said, you're looking for things that reason with logic. You, you want things that don't have the, the law of non-contradictions. They, they make claims and don't contradict themselves. So you're learning something. That's a hypothesis here. Here's a hypothesis there. Which of these make claims that are non-contradictory? We're going to use our reason and logic. The second thing is somebody makes a claim, like somebody might say, people are, are basically good people. And you say, well, does that correspond to reality? I'm selfish. My wife and I love each other, but we hurt each other because we're selfish and unkind. You're asking, is a claim made by science, by philosophy, by religion, does it correspond to reality? Is what you're claiming show up in reality? That's the second lens by which you find truth. But there's a third one, and it's reveling in wonder. There's certain truths when someone says it out loud, you're like, yes, I've experienced that. Yes, that's true. You see a, a, a piece of art, and you're like, wow, now that's beautiful. Self-evident truths, beautiful things that you, you, not just your brain, but your, even your soul speaks out. To, wow, I want to know more about that. I saw that beautiful painting. That's beautiful. I want to know more about the painter because I'm reveling in the wonder. So we're going to get three birds today. And we're going to find by studying the birds, we're going to find these three truths can be true in us as well. 
Start with the peacock. Start with the peacock. Look at the majesty of this bird. Look at the colors. See, when we look at the peacock, one of the first things we notice is that beauty, when you're looking at, at logic or looking at beauty through the lens of, 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 of reveling, you're detecting beauty, you're detecting design, you're detecting engineering. In fact, when NASA is looking for intelligent life through the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life, they're looking for design, radio signals that represent intelligent design out in the universe. So if when we see a pattern or design out there, it might be intelligent, even more so when we see that intelligent design here, it should speak to intelligence. And the response to that is an expression of thankfulness for the color, for the majesty, for the wonder, and as you're going to see, the engineering of this bird. Now, peacocks only show up in the Bible a few times. There's a guy named Solomon, and he's king, and he wants people to know about God. So he improves the economic condition. There's gold everywhere. There's silver everywhere. People have jobs. It's just an amazing flourishing of business. But then he starts importing these, these birds that are only in India at the time. He brings in uh, peacocks. He also brings in apes. They've never seen apes before in the Middle East. He just wants people to see all the creativity and all the wonder that's out there. And he brings in these peacocks. And the book of Job, God had said to Job, hey, gaveth thou... It's in the King James. Gaveth thou the goodly wings of the peacocks? Have you ever looked at the wings? You can learn about me by looking at the wings of a peacock. Really? Yeah. God goes on to tell Job, later in Job, that when we study these things, when we examine these birds, it speaks to our soul in a way that can develop thankfulness. What does he say? Ask the beasts. They will teach you. The birds of the air, study them. They will tell you. Who among all these does not know the hand of the Lord has done this? All right, Chad, I don't hear a lot of evidence here. It's coming. In fact, Charles Darwin, as he made his hypothesis about, about the finches of the birds and their different beaks, as he began to develop his scientific theory, the animal that he struggled with the most was the peacock. So let's delve in for a moment and look at all the design built into that peacock we may not initially notice. Let's watch. There are at least 8 million different species of animals and plants. And for more than a century, the go-to explanation for their incredible diversity has been the theory of natural selection. Charles Darwin's hypothesis of gradual, undirected biological change has had enormous influence on both science and philosophy. Yet can a purely materialistic process actually account not only for the stunning variety of living organisms, but also for their extravagant beauty. I think the place to start with natural selection and beauty is Darwin himself. He wrote once that every time he saw the tail of a peacock, it made him physically ill, sick to his stomach, because he's looking at something that goes well beyond what his theories, either of natural selection or sexual selection, can explain. To better understand Darwin's concerns about beauty, peacocks, and their threat to his theory, let's take a closer look at those feathers. 
you see the peacock's tail and you go, wow. It's a visual crescendo of symmetry, harmony, coordination among all the elements of the design. And the deeper you look, the more interesting it becomes. An adult male peacock has, on average, about 200 individual tail feathers. 170 of them feature a decorative eye spot, and 30 are crowned with a wing-shaped plume called a tee. When displayed during courtship, the feathers form a magnificent fan, where every eye spot and tee are uniformly spaced and geometrically balanced to create a showcase of pattern, symmetry, precision, and design. This bird is a living, breathing work of art. And when we move in close to the details, we see craftsmanship and planning and subtle engineering that's just utterly obvious. The shape of every eye spot is defined by rows of multicolored branching strands called barbs. Moving closer, we see that each barb contains thousands of barbules, microscopic filaments tightly compacted along a rigid shaft. And the surface of each barbule is segmented into crystal-like bands of molecular jewelry. These barbules are reflective, so they glimmer and change color when struck by light from different angles. The total effect of all this decoration provides an excellent example of what is known as gratuitous beauty. That's beauty that goes way beyond what's needed to attract a mate or to provide some other survival advantage. In other words, you have features that look like they're there for no other reason than to be gorgeous, to be beautiful, to be breathtaking. So if NASA tells us that intelligence is shown by detecting design, did you see any design? Did you see the geometry? Did you see the beauty? When you get down to what looks like a little thing, it, it's even more complex microscopically than we saw in the big picture. It's one of the reasons God shows up and he says when we study science, it actually can deepen your faith. It's not an enemy of faith. When you look at a sunset, what, what happens when you see a sunrise or a sunset? See, the Bible says when you see beauty and science around you, for since the creation of the world, his invisible, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. You can understand them by looking at beauty around you and studying science around you. They're understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and attributes can be seen there. And, and then he says something really weird. He says, and the natural response to seeing beauty and science and wonder is to be thankful. And to miss that beauty is to miss out on thankfulness, which is strange. I have a friend of mine who's a a real strong follower of Jesus, and he's got a good friend who's an agnostic. And they love hanging out together and, and doing a lot of stuff together, and they love vacationing together. And one of the things they love to see is just a sunset at the end of the day. You know that feeling you have when you're watching a sunset and you're watching it go down? You've had it. I've had it. And at the end of the day, my friend who's a Christian turned to his buddy who's an agnostic and said, hey, um, what do you feel when you see a sunset? He said, I don't know how I feel. Um, I feel grateful. He's like, well, to whom are you grateful? 
So it's this natural response, no matter where you are in your faith or skepticism, to say, yeah, I want to be thankful to someone or something. I guess I'll, I'll take the word God out and put evolution. I'm thankful to evolution. I'm thankful to the universe. But there's this intuitively built into you self-evident idea of, of thankfulness. And the peacock becomes a symbol used by Christian catacombs and in Christian coffins all through history. In fact, you see the, the peacock, you'll see often at the top of churches or the top of coffins or catacombs will be two peacocks next to each other. Because when a peacock loses its feathers, new feathers come in. And the new feathers are thought to be more beautiful than the ones before. And Christians said, hey, this life is good. This life is awesome. This planet is great. But we, when you die and pass away and lose your feathers, lose this body, because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of his, his destruction of death, if you put your faith in him, what comes next is even more beautiful. It's even more alive. It's even more colorful. And so the peacock became a symbol of what happens in nature is what can happen in eternity by putting your faith in Christ. Hmm. Let's move on to the hummingbird. So if we detect beauty from the peacock, look at that, that hummingbird. And, and if you've ever had hummingbirds in your backyard or my, my wife's grandmother had these uh, hummingbirds everywhere, we could just watch them out of the kitchen table. Just something amazing about it. And for the hummingbird, you want to develop kind of a bird brain again. How do I focus on what's going on here? Let's put on our engineering brain. Let's put on our, our, our chemical brain. Let's put on, oh, my goodness, the, the bones of a bird have to be hollow because they have to weigh less. And they've got to, the reason they poop all over the place is because their digestive system works so fast they can keep their weight down. Oh, there's a lot of components here. And studying the birds can also lead to you being worry-free, less anxious about your life. Oh, uh, really? No. Yeah. In fact, here's what Jesus says. Jesus is given a big sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's talking, he says exactly that. He says, I say to you, do not worry about your life. Well, I worry about my life. Maybe you worry about yours. You're worrying about what you eat or what you drink. Don't worry about your body and what you're going to put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, yeah. So then what's his solution to all your worry problems? <laughs> look at the birds. Really, Jesus? Yeah, look at the birds. The birds of the air. Study them. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of value than they? He gives another sermon like this in Luke where he says, consider the ravens. He says, when you see God's fingerprint and, and, and intricacy in the little things, like a bird, you're going to understand how much he cares for you and be less anxious. Let's do a little Q&A, a little trivia here real quick. I'm going to give you a quote. See who you think said this. If you're watching from home, feel free to do the same thing. Kind of answer in your own mind what do you think it is. All right. Yet the living results of natural selection overwhelmingly impress us with the appearance of design as if by a master watchmaker. Design, master craftsmanship. Who said that? Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, Johann Kepler, the Christian person who calculated the uh, orbits of all the planets, or Stephen Hawking. Any guesses? At home, you want to guess? It was actually Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. So even a famous atheist says, hey, at least looks a appears like it's designed, and at least looks like there's a master watchmaker, but, but ignore that. To which I'd say, let's use reason. What's more... What, what hypothesis is more reliable? That this complex design and master craftsmanship happened out of randomness or it happened out of intelligence? 
Maybe we'll do what Jesus said, right? Jesus said to consider the ravens. Let's look at a raven real quick. So here's what a raven looks like. What are you, you going to learn from that, right? Except maybe uh, some, some uh, poetry about the ravens. Well, which is true of the raven? They can imitate the human voice. Two, they, some European cultures consider them an omen of evil. C, they roll around in anthills. Four, they demonstrate empathy for each other. Or E, all the above. I guess? E, all the above. Now, pause and think about that for a moment. How hard is it to imitate the human voice? How many times do you hear Siri or your, your Echo on Amazon and you go, that sounds like a human? No. All right, what else do you want? I mean, just it, imitating the human voice is complex. Our best engineers, our best computer software people can't do it to a point at which you recognize it. And yet here is a bird, a bird who can imitate the human voice. Let's move to the, to the hummingbird. A couple questions about the hummingbird. If you've seen one, just something in your captures. Like you see a hummingbird. Oh, every look, it's a hummingbird, right? Look at the hummingbird. Did you know we designed our helicopters by studying the mechanics already found in hummingbirds and one other animal or one other insect? So which was it? So when we developed a helicopter, did we study the dragonfly and the hummingbird, the bumblebee and the hummingbird, or the butterfly and the hummingbird? I heard of A, B, was actually the dragonfly. And what's amazing is the dragonfly and the hummingbird are so precise in their engineering, they are so able to convert energy in, into that hovering movement that they actually are far more efficient. A dragonfly and, and a hummingbird is more efficient than our most complex billion-dollar helicopters that we've invested in over time. Does that speak to random chance? If what nature can produce, our best minds over time can't get close? A couple more questions about the hummingbird. How many hours can a hummingbird hover in one day? Six hours, 12 hours, or 18 hours? Think about when you go on a flight or you've ever been on a helicopter, how much gas it takes and how long you can hover. How many hours a day do you think? 18 hours a day a hummingbird can hover. Think of the mechanics. They're going to move their wings at 20 to 30. Guinness Book World Records is 80 beats per second. Think about the, the, the friction of that. Think about how much it would wear out if you had something went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth 80 times a second. You can do that for 18 hours a day? How much energy would you need to produce that kind of work? Well, in a given day, does a hummingbird eat half its weight, the same as its weight, or twice its weight in food? Hard to see. C, twice its weight in food. you got this much energy or this much uh, uh, food to produce that much energy for 18 hours of flight. All right, let's learn more about the hummingbird. Let's watch them in action because to see them in action is just amazing. The hummingbird, it can actually fly, like I said, 80 beats per second. And it's not just how it flies and the engineering of it and the overcoming of the friction it's not just the hollowness of its bones and all these other components, but nothing about the hummingbirds is how they migrate. They migrate from the panhandle. You'll see them flying, right? And you're like, hey, Grandma, come over here. Grandkids, come over. You've got to see this. Look, look at how amazing it is. They will leave the panhandle, Florida, and over in Louisiana, and they will fly from that area in one flight to the Yucatan in Central America. 
Think of how much energy it takes for you to fly from here to America, or here to, to Central America. They will fly it in one run, and as they're flapping their way in, they'll arrive in Mexico to the Yucatan, and they are so worn out from all that energy used as they fatten themselves up before they went, they will collapse on the beaches. You'll see on the beach, like, ha, ha, ha. And they were able to do that with this much energy, this much food. Think of the energy consumption. Look at the efficiency there. And that's just in its flight. That's just in its wings. That's just its ability to move and maneuver. So how do you get all that energy into you? You always see them feeding, right? You always see them eating. But, but how does that beak stick into a flower and actually get any kind of nutrients out of there? This is where the engineering gets even more amazing. So if your brain leans into beauty, the beauty here is amazing. If you lean into engineering, the engineering is amazing. When that hummingbird is hungry, it sticks its tongue out. And what looks like just a regular tongue is far more than a regular tongue. No other bird is like it, so it's not like there's one that adapted into it. There's no other tongue like this. This tongue cuts itself in half and opens up as it goes into the flower. As we have looked under a microscope at exactly what's going on inside of the tongue of a hummingbird, it is a complex spiral system of bulldozers that open one after another after another after another as it enters into the flower. Now, originally, they thought it was siphoned, just like siphoning gas or, or, or siphoning through a straw. They thought it just siphoned its way out through capillaries. But now we've studied, we see intricate, unbelievable design as it goes into the flower. As you see its tongue go into the flower, watch what happens. And ask yourself, could this happen without design? Could you design a bulldozer system that could go into a flower, instantly know what it is, break in half, and as it goes in, in one twentieth of a second, the bulldozer opens, flap after flap after flap after flap after flap, capturing the food, closes each flap, boom, 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 begins to pull it out, and all this will happen in one 20th of a second. Look at the beauty of that. Look at the engineering of that. Look at the design of that. Now let me tell you about their migration. I told you they collapse on the beaches of Florida. But what's more amazing is on their way back, I'm sorry, on the beaches of, of Yucatan, when they fly back from Yucatan, they're making their way back, they feed themselves up and gorge themselves, they're going to make the trip back, they fly their way back, and when they arrive back in Florida, they arrive at just the moment that the yellow bellied sapsucker woodpecker is leaving. And those yellow belly have been feeding themselves by poking hole after hole after hole in the trees. And so just as these hummingbirds arrive, it's just when the yellow belly sapsucker moves north. And they arrive to lollipop trees with sap dripping with goodness to replenish themselves when they arrive in the States. You see the wonder not of one bird, but how the whole system works and interacts with each other. So I called Jim up and I said, Jim, Tell me again why you watch birds. He said, well, my brother made fun of me. He goes, Chad, you made fun of me for years. He goes, but I walk along the trail every day that a 1,000 people walk in Atlanta. And when I got my binoculars out, I get to see things that other people are missing. He said, and when I see these things, I got to tell you, I just feel so special. And I like even the simple ones. I will see a robin, like the song we listened to. The orange robin, the orange color of a robin just speaks to such beauty. And one of my favorites, he said, is the red cardinal. I just love seeing a plain old red cardinal. He says, I love those seeing the, the ruby-crowned kinglet. He says, it's kind of an ugly head, but it's got one little drop, almost like red paint on top. He says, I took my brother who was making fun of me out, and we spent a banner day looking through the 
through the uh, binoculars, and even he stopped harassing me and said, oh, my goodness, I didn't really realize there's all these cool, interesting, amazing things all around me. He said, we had a banner day. I said, so what do you feel when you look at birds? He said, huh, I've never been asked that before. He said, I guess number one, I feel special. They got to see something that everybody else is missing as they just run through their lives, listening to their podcasts. The second thing he said is, when I see the beauty of the birds around me, he says, I don't know if it's an emotion, but I feel safe. Safe. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, when I recognize that, that God has put such care and concern and touch into little bitty birds, even more so what I must mean to him. Hmm. Haven't taken up bird watching, but I'm getting close. It's starting to convince me. So our hearts can be filled with thankfulness by looking at the birds and the peacocks. Worry-free as we begin to feel safe, understanding that the, the details around us had to come from somebody who's concerned and an engineer and cares about the creation around them, but just the care put into this. But thirdly, one of the reasons we study biology and study science and study animals is because when you study God's works, it fills you with wonder. Let's look at the chicken for a second. I mean, you talk about something we take for granted. Look at a boring old chicken, right? We eat them. We, we see people chasing around the yard. My, my, my in-laws raise chickens and, and old chicks. But the reason we study the, the wonder of life is because it makes you wonderful. You're full of wonder. Does your heart lack some wonder these days, kind of cranking through the same old thing every day and every night, and eventually one day I'll retire? And Okay, that's fine, but don't, doesn't your heart and soul need some wonder? When you study these things, see a... The, the flight of a hummingbird, when you see the, the beauty of a peacock, when you see an incredible tongue, when you see the intricacies of life being formed from a chicken, it fills you with wonder. And we are a society that just lacks wonder. Don't you want to be wonderful, full of wonder? Look at a, Think of a baby chick. I remember when Sierra was in like sixth grade, they, they let them take a chick home for... for <laughs> For, to be a pet. So then we got this chick. In fact, we, we chose a duck. So she literally was walking this duck around on our front yard. So she would actually walk up and down the street with this ridiculous duck. But what, what did Job say? Ask the birds and they will tell you. Who among all these does not know the hand of the Lord has done this? Look at the intricacies of how it is formed and what is made. And he goes on in the Psalms. It says, it's not just the birds. It's all study of wonder and all study of life. Look what the psalmist said. It's the guy who read a song about this. Look at his words. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. This connects with my heart when I study this stuff. When I study things with my mind, it does something in my heart. The works of the Lord are great. They are studied. That's a science word. By all who have pleasure in them. Man, I don't just like science. I'm enjoying what I'm learning. And when I, when I come out of it, I realize, man, that work is wonderful. That is amazing. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. So think about an egg, right? I have boiled eggs for Easter and, and made my little Easter eggs and all that. We eat eggs for breakfast. Have you ever stopped to think, or let's pause a moment to look at the wonder of an egg? That that chicken, with his incredible colors and designs, is laying a, a fragile little egg that somehow comes out without breaking most of the time. And inside that is both nutrients that can be eaten or a possible life to be formed. Well, that is intriguing. But for years, you know, we kind of, you know, I don't know what happens in there, but it's amazing, a chick pops out. But we now have microscopes and cameras that can go into the egg. 
And, and in the same way that the psalmist used to write, man, I can just imagine how God formed me in the womb. And I just got a sense that I have a, a plan and design because, man, I get to see that my parts are intricate and how they all fit together, my nervous system, my electrical system. But he even does that for the animals. Let's just look at two weeks of what happens inside of an egg. And look again for the design, the wonder. And does it look like a caring God would create something that could be put together as a craftsman like this? Join me. Let's, let's step into the egg for a moment. This intricate process is perhaps best revealed through the study of a chicken embryo. A complex organism that takes shape soon after fertilization as individual cells multiply and organize within a protective shell. In the early hours, you see the foundation for this organism that's coming later on being laid down. You see the, you know, the front and the back and the top and the bottom and all of those things being worked out in this cascade of events. Where's the head going to be? Where's the tail going to be? What's right, what's left, what's front versus back? Already, these major axes are being established. And as these cells are moving and heading towards the places in the embryo where they're going to develop, they're also changing what they're going to do eventually. They're committing themselves, in most cases, irreversibly to particular functional roles. On day two, the bird's spinal cord, ears and eyes take shape. Its vascular and circulatory systems are established, and its heart beats for the first time. At hour 46, the head of the embryo starts to arch into the fetal position. Throughout the second day, a network of blood vessels branches from the embryo into the yolk. They will transport vital nutrients back to the growing organism. You gotta pay attention to the details. You have genes being switched on and off, interaction, cell communication. It's an elaborate dance. It's like a ballet taking place on a stage with thousands of cast members. All of them are doing everything they're supposed to on cue, in the right order, in the right sequence, in the right time. Said the same thing Chad did. It's not just what's happening. It's the right order, the right place, the right time. Day two, you got a spinal cord. Day two. Could you make a spinal cord in two days? Can our top engineers make a spinal cord? You've had back injuries. You know people had. We can't re even repair it, let alone build a brand new spinal cord in two days. Chad talked about the fact he works with hearts. That chicken, that chicken was building a heart in two days. Our best engineers and doctors can't create a heart. You know, we got valves and replacements, but chicken of all things can create a heart that's starting to work in two days wow I have a guy I met several years ago his name's Joe Martin he was a, he's a dentist a doctor and a lecturer on science and he uh, he actually was uh, believe it or not on uh, Air Force One he was the dentist for President uh, Johnson of all places all things and and as he began as a dentist, he was lecturing on how scales of fish slowly over time became the teeth in our mouth, and over a given enough time, scales could turn to teeth. And he had a couple of followers of Jesus who were in a couple of classes at, at college and said, 
Are you open to another, another hypothesis? The genetics of a scale are nothing like the genetics of a tooth. Is that really a plausible explanation? And if you've been to the dentist or you, you've, been, you've worked in dentistry, think about your teeth. You've had one pulled. Look at, look at the intricacy of that. Think of the fact that your teeth are small enough that when you're born, they're going to last till you're 10. And look at that. There just happens to be bigger teeth right underneath it that are coming up at just the right time so it fits in there for an adult. And he began to look at the science as a dentist and the scientist and say, you know what? You're right, scales and teeth aren't even made of the same thing at a genetic level. This is not a good hypothesis. And then I remember going to, the, to my dentist one time, and I'm like, yeah, like it's just weird when you see a skeleton, right? It's got all this bone. It's got the bone for your jaw and the bone for your teeth. He's like, no, what? Your teeth aren't bone. I mean, my teeth aren't bone. He's like, no, no, teeth? I said, what are teeth made of? He says, teeth. But teeth is not bone. So it's not like your, your jaw just suddenly got, got some pointy things and then got bigger. It's an intricate, different, even type of material that make up your teeth. Joe Martin began to journey through the evidence as a dentist and as a doctor to go, this hypothesis is not consistent with the evidence. And he became a follower of Jesus and now lectures all over the world on his journey through the science to find faith. So how about for you? Maybe today is a, is a new day that you want to start keeping your eye on, on the birds that you would keep your eyes on the birds so that God might teach you something. He wants you to keep your eye on the birds so that you know that he keeps his eye on you. To begin to notice the things around you. So that you'd be filled with thankfulness that just like the birds have a purpose and that tongue has a purpose, you have a purpose and you have a design. To be filled with worry-free, I'm very anxious, i got to control everything, it's my job, it's my job, it's my job. You know what, if God takes care of those birds that fall at times and, and get right back up and you can buy them at the store for a couple bucks, Jesus says, how much more valuable are you than them? And if you want to fill your life with wonder, maybe it's time to stop and notice and let nature speak to you and notice the details. I want to invite the band to come out. And, and, and again, let's look at the words Jesus said. What did he say about this? Keep your eye on the birds so you realize God keeps his eye on you. That's his famous sermon. Consider the birds. And then you'll realize you don't need to worry about your body, what you eat, what you drink, what you're going to clothe yourself with. Consider the ravens. So today we've looked at three birds. The peacock, the hummingbird, and the chicken. And in that, we've discovered that Jesus is a genius Long before science, long before microscopes, long before telescopes, Jesus was able to speak to a truth that would hit your mind, your soul, and your heart. And so as we go out today, I want to encourage you to think not just about these three birds, but what are some other birds, what are some other sciences that may challenge you intellectually on the hypothesis you've heard, but also fill your soul with wonder. Who thought you could get so much out of three little birds? Who thought that would be a song that would make you think about God? Three little birds. Yet Jesus says in the same way that God takes care of the birds, so you don't have to worry, he loved you so much that he came from heaven to earth and he died for you because he cares that much about you. It cost him something. It cost him his life. You want some of that worry-free that comes from knowing God? Let's pray together. Maybe you just want to say to God something like this. God, I want to keep my eyes on you. I want to notice your handiwork and the birds around me. And if you're ready, maybe you think, God, if it's true 
that you came from heaven to earth for me, I want to at least investigate that. I want to think about embracing that. But I definitely want some of those benefits of being worry-free because a loving God is watching over me. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you all next week.